living in Dunedin, uh, you all should uh, be maybe at least a little bit familiar with this phrase, this idea of thin places. Have you ever heard of that phrase before, that there, there's thin places? Uh, so it comes from the Scottish people, actually, uh, and they had the idea that there are, there are some places here on earth that, that seem thin. It, it seems that, that heaven and earth almost seem to kiss. As, as the veil that divides the two seems thinner in some places over others. And so it's the idea that while you are still very much here in this world, you're also catching a glimpse of eternity. And you know, eternity isn't just like time that goes on and on and on and on and on and on forever. Instead, e- eternity is a, is a place where there's, there's really no thought, there's really no concern for time because there's no place that you would rather be. There, there's no reason to want to go back to what was and turn back to it, and nor is there a desire to rush ahead and move on to what's next. Instead, eternity is that place where you know there's no place you would rather be. Because in that moment, you're completely content with being completely. That's what eternity is. And so there's been a few times in my life where I feel like I've maybe caught a glimpse of this, some of those thin places. Uh, So I wanted to share a few of them here with you today. Um, The first one... I think we have a picture of it. It's, it's the mountains. Um, I'll get to that one. The first one is, uh, is the mountains in, uh, in North Carolina. Um, and it's the mountains because uh, the mountains have no sand. And I love that. <laughs> and the mountains don't have 110% humidity when it's 110 degrees out. And I love that. And in the mountains, my fair skin doesn't need 100 SPF. I need sunscreen, but not 100 SPF. So I really appreciate the mountains. But the real reason why uh, the mountains are kind of one of those thin places for me is because uh, my family would always go uh, to the mountains for vacation. That's where we would always take our trips. And also, uh, when I got married, my wife Jenny and I, we'd often go to the mountains to get away and just kind of be together. And those were some precious moments uh, that we had before kids came along and ruined everything. Um, <clears throat> and now we don't even get to enjoy daylight saving time ending. So that, there's that. Uh, anyways, uh, here's the next place. You, you caught a glimpse of it. Um, this is uh, the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in uh, Conyers, Georgia. So it's not among mountains, but it's among like rolling hills, and it's this beautiful place. I go there every year, uh, usually right after Easter, to kind of give myself a break, uh, but also to pray, uh, to study, to kind of prepare for the next upcoming year. Um, so that's, uh, that's the Monastery of the Holy Spirit. And it's beautiful, as you can see. That's their chapel. It's beautiful, as you can see. Uh, but what I find really beautiful is... Um, Whenever I'm there, I usually see Brother Mark. He's been there forever. Uh, Brother Mark running and chasing these wild geese uh, throughout property, and he's got his big, you know, monk's friar robe on, and things are just flailing about, and he just has so much joy on his face. I I love it. So uh, the monastery is one of my favorites. Um, There's countless others uh, that I've shared, and, and, you know, 
All Saints Day is kind of always one of those days for me as well because I have people who are here among these candles. I have done many of these funerals. I have shared words of grace and hope and new life with these families that are represented here. And today we get to honor them and celebrate them. And there's many who I still hold deep within my heart. And so what I've learned about thin places and what I've learned that what makes a place a place that I really love and feel like I belong to isn't so much about the location. Yeah, the mountains are beautiful. Yeah, the monastery is beautiful. But what really makes a place a place that I love and a place that I belong to is the relationships that have been formed there. And I think that as best as I could describe it, if I had to describe it, that's probably how I would describe heaven. It's a place that the location is beautiful, yes, but it's a place that we'll all really love and feel like we belong to because of the relationships that are found there. And so I get a lot of questions about heaven Usually when I'm on an airplane and the person sitting next to me finds out that I'm a preacher, right? Which, pray for me, because tomorrow I get on a plane, and so, you know, I'm sure these are going to come up. I'm going to be kicking myself tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. But I, I often get asked questions about heaven, and it's like, are the streets literally paved with gold? Or will I see my childhood dog there? And I always say, man... I don't know. I've never been there. And I don't really plan on going there today with you. So I just, I don't know. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but it says this uh, from, from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul talking. And uh, he's kind of sharing about the mystery and the beauty of, of heaven and, and, you know, life after life and what it's like. And he says, dear friends, we are n- now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. We we don't quite know what it's going to be like. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And so all who have this hope purify themselves. Just as he is pure. So there's another passage of scripture that <clears throat> talks about heaven quite a bit. Um, actually, it's a whole book uh, that talks about heaven quite a bit. It's the book of Revelation. I know, okay? We're diving in deep today. Uh, you know, when I, whenever I mention the book of Revelation, I see everybody get a little tense, right? Uh, everybody gets a little worried, okay? It's, I know it's a strange book. It's a complex book. But the book of Revelation, it's really gotten a bad rap, Revelation is not the making of nightmares, as it's often portrayed. Revelation is not the making of nightmares. It's the making of nightmares come to an end. It tells us of the violent ways of this world and how they shall come to an end. 
so that nothing but the love and the grace of God will remain, and that will be the reign forever. That's how eternity is going to be ordered, not by the ways of violence that this world is ordered by, but by the ways of truth and peace and hope and love and faith. And so John, the author of the book of Revelation, he wrote this book while, it, while he was in one of those kind of thin places. He has a vision of what heaven will be like while he's firmly planted in this earth. He's on the island of Patmos, it says, and yet he sees the beauty of the next life, the afterlife. And Revelation tells the story I mean, this is John's vision. When he sees this kind of thin places, he can see through the veil. And it's really about God making all things new. It's a book of hope. It speaks of the triumph of life over death. It speaks of the victory of love over hate and fear. It tells us that there is freedom, there is hope, there is new life, there is a new future where there once was no future. It is a book of good news. And so I want to take you to to just a little passage within uh, this beautiful and mysterious book. It's about a third of the way into John's vision that he has. It comes from Revelation chapter 7. And it says this, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So he's seeing kind of heaven, and he sees this great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders. Okay, so the elders are kind of like the guys who are on security detail up in heaven. They're supposed to be, you know, taking a head count. But here, the elders can't keep track. I mean, there's so many people, they, they can't count them. It's, it's impossible to number them. So then one of the elders asked me, asked John, these in white robes, who are they? <laughs> And where did they come from? I, I love that. Who, who are these people? What are they doing here? Where did, where did they all come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. That's a time of suffering, a time of pain, a time of struggle. And now they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He's talking about God enfolding, sheltering the saints. And never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Amen.
um, you see, these folks, they've seen some stuff in their life. They have struggled. They've had heartache. And so now they're covered in dirt. They're covered in mud. They're covered in pain and shame and loss and grief. And yet, and yet they've come to wash their robes clean in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what I love about this, this image is, you know, we can talk about it all day long, but, but what I love about it is that it does not say that these people have kept their robes white the whole time. They show up with some dirt. They show up with some stains. They show up because they've gotten dirty. And they need to have their robes washed. And it tells us that that the people who make it into heaven are not the ones who have kept themselves spotless the whole time. It's not that exclusive. But the people that make it into heaven are the ones who have the faith to come and wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And so today we celebrate all saints. and, And that word all is really important. I mean, usually when we think of saints, we think of old men with bad haircuts, but that's not really the case. It's not old men with bad haircuts who, you know, just spend their whole days praying and reading the Bible. Or maybe we humanize it a little bit and we can think of Mother Teresa, uh, who became a saint within the Catholic tradition uh, not too long ago, who spent her whole life working with uh, the poor. But saints aren't fancy, (laughs) Saints aren't just super Christians. Saints are, well, saints. So in the New Testament, when you uh, look up the word saint, you'll find the word hagios, uh, which is, uh, it's a word that shows up uh, quite a few times, and it doesn't just refer to one's character. You know, we think of saints, we think of really good people, but it's larger than that. So the word hagios in Greek, it literally means, uh, it refers to a person's uh, state, state of being. So it's one who has been separated unto God. A saint is someone who has been separated unto God. So in this sense, everyone who has tethered their life to God is a saint, Everyone who has tethered their life to God is a saint. Every believer, even the most unordinary, the most ordinary, the most immature, everyone is a saint. That you are saints. Whether you choose to believe it or not, that's the truth of who you are in the eyes of God. You are a saint. And I can kind of get on board with that understanding of saintliness, struggling in search for, the, for sainthood, that I'm not perfect, and I got my own stains on me. And on most days, if I'm honest, I'm more parts sinner than I am saint. But yet, I struggle, and yet, I am a saint. And so according to this, one day, I'll be given the opportunity to wash my robes. And so will you. One day, I'll be given the opportunity to be made pure. And I'll join that choir and say, 
Amen. Salvation belongs to our God. I think of Jesus' famous sermon, although I bet it wasn't very famous at the time on the day that he preached it, uh, but we say it's famous. Um, Probably when he preached it, it upset quite a few people when he said, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me and rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus blesses all kinds of people but here he blesses people that aren't typically thought of as being blessed. He blesses the people that are usually forgotten. The poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners. In essence, Jesus says, blessed are you who struggle. The world typically gives these folks little regard, just as few notice the many griefs and losses that we all face. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, loss of a relationship, of a friendship, of a marriage, of a miscarriage, the loss of independence and health, the loss of hope, the loss of trust. And yet in every one of those situations, Jesus says, blessed are you. He doesn't say, One day you will be blessed, but he says, blessed are. Even now, even here, present tense, you're blessed. How how can that be? I mean, we, we don't see that, right? We don't feel that. But blessing isn't like a flu shot, right? Blessing doesn't mean make you uh, immunized from all the pain and suffering and the heartache that this world will give you. Rather, being blessed is a sense of fullness. It, it, it's a sense of, of contentment. It's a sense of completement, a sense of joy that, that is like but wholly transcends happiness. Being blessed is being wholehearted, I think, is a good way that we could put it. And so, like so many other things, like love and hope, blessing can't be mustered up. We, we, can't, we can't bring it about by our own hopes and our own strength, but it's a response that we have to the God who loves us. And so, it's knowing that even in the midst of struggle, 
one day there will be a reason to sing. And so there's one last thin place of mine that I want to share with you all uh, today. It's a place that most people wouldn't say it's blessed. And the people there aren't blessed. It's a place of tears and hunger and thirst. And yet in this place, there are tears of joy. There is thirst for God and there is hunger for Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'll get to that. Let me explain that. Uh, But a few years ago, actually, I think three years ago today, uh, I went to South Africa. And I went to South Africa as part of a, um, a group that went to learn about racial reconciliation and how the churches in South Africa during the season of apartheid that was there, how those churches remained faithful and uh, shared the good news of reconciliation uh, for the people that were struggling under apartheid, the black South Africans and the white South Africans. Uh, so we went to go and, and learn about that, especially it felt appropriate in our nation's time of, of racial tension. Um, But one day, we went outside to a township outside of of Durban uh, to an AIDS center. We went to Hillcrest AIDS Center. Um, It's a place where uh, they help educate people about HIV and AIDS, which is a very big issue still in South Africa. Um, they do some preventative measures uh, where where they can. uh, They treat people um, but really most of their work is spent comforting those in their final days as they struggle with AIDS. And so um, <clears throat> when, we, uh, when we said that we were going to go there, we, we asked them if we could bring them lunch, and they said, yeah, sure, we'd love that. Can you stop by and get some Kentucky Fried Chicken? Um, because KFC reigns supreme in South Africa, I guess. Um, so we went there. We met with some of the patients. We, we took a tour. Uh, and then I sat down with my plate of fried chicken. And I went over to a group of some of the patients there. And I sat down. And uh, I started to eat. And I looked and nobody else was eating along with me. Instead, they were all staring at me, and there was this really awkward moment, this really awkward silence, and I just kind of looked around, and then one of the guys spoke up, and he said, why are you eating off of that plate? And I looked down, and I didn't really understand what he meant. He said, why would you eat off of that plate? I said, I I don't... I don't know. It's just got my fried chicken on it, man. I just, it's a plate. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. Nobody from my village would dare eat off the same plate as me that I've eaten off of. Because in my village, I'm cursed. No one touched me. No one would comfort me. No one would hug me. And no one would dare eat off the same plate that I eat off of because I am cursed with AIDS. I am untouchable. And so, in that moment, it was kind of one of those thin places. An ordinary meal with KFC turned into something extraordinary and beautiful where strangers could come together, sit down, 
and become friends, even for a brief moment in time, and extend the hospitality and the grace that God shows each and every one of us. And so I think what lunchtime in heaven looks like, I always think of that. Maybe not with KFC, but I think of that. Where the location isn't really the biggest thing, but it's the relationships that are formed that really make that place a place to love and belong to. And so then after we had lunch, I I got up and I started wandering around the rest of the center, uh, and I got a little lost, actually. And uh, I found myself in a garden, and I saw this, this big, beautiful wall. I started looking at it, and one of the other patients came over, and I asked him about it. And uh, on that wall, I think, yeah, you can see it here. On that wall, there's all these little tiles, and um, each one is, is unique and different. And so I asked the man about it, and he said, uh, each one of those tiles is for a person who has passed away in this center from AIDS. Every month, there's about 20 to 30 people who pass away from AIDS at Hillcrest Center. That wall is 20 yards long. And most of the names on there represent people who are under 20 years old. And so that wall, it kind of broke me. That became my wailing wall for the next few moments in time. And it was one of those times where I don't know how long it was. It was like an eternity like one of those thin places. But looking at each one of the tiles, they're each beautiful in their own way. They've been colored and crafted and created to honor a life that's been cut short by something that doesn't need to be And each tile was painted by another patient who has survived them, at at least for a time. And they paint the pieces for each other as a symbol of hope. And so you'll see there's... um, They're arranged in in different ways, like a tree and a dove. But I spent some time here, and and these are the names that are arranged... um, as a candle. It reminded me that no matter how dark the night may be, there is still a flickering of light. There is still hope. There is still some beauty to be made out of the struggle. And so looking at that candle, that's when I kind of realized what Jesus meant when he gave the Beatitudes. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Because they 
show us the light. They show us that even in the struggle, there is something to be hoped for. There's a searching for sainthood. And it's their light that guides our way, that leads us to communion with them and communion with God. And so just like that time in South Africa, I can't help but come to the Lord's table without thinking of that experience of sharing a meal with a total stranger who felt outcasted and unloved. And yet in that moment, we became friends just for a time. And I think that happens every time we come to this table together. We who are strangers, we're not called strangers here. We're called brother and sister. We're called friends of God, children of God. We're called saints. And all are welcomed here. So will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for all the saints who have gone before us. We thank you for their life. Lord, we thank you for their example that they may light the way before us. And Lord Jesus, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts so that we would live in you and that all of our days would be filled of those thin places where heaven and earth seem to meet. So meet with us here, Lord Jesus. Inspire our hearts that we may live with you. May your Holy Spirit be poured out on these gifts of bread and the cup, that they would be for us the body and blood of Jesus, so that we may be his body, united as one throughout all times and places, and know that we are redeemed by his blood. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.